I can't tell you how many times someone has pulled me aside in a meeting and said, I can't talk the way I do. And you hear my voice. You see how I, you see how I talk. I'm not meek, nor am I soft-spoken. And I, I speak a certain way. Now, a lot of people, specifically executives, have pulled me aside and say, Eric, you can't, can't challenge. Don't challenge, Eric. Just keep your head down. Keep your head down. Just do the hard work. You'll be recognized. Just Do It by Nike has moved beyond a popular advertising slogan to an expression of our culture. Its brand name is as recognized around the world as IBM, Coca-Cola, and Google. So it may come as a surprise that Nike only understood the importance of marketing late in its life, after it hit the billion-dollar revenue mark. After more than a decade of explosive growth, Nike misjudged the aerobics market and made a disastrous move into casual shoes, all of which forced the company into a period of intense self-examination. Ultimately, that led to the founder, Phil Knight's famous refrain, that Nike is a marketing company and our product is our most important marketing tool. Which brings me to today's guest, former global digital brand marketing director at Nike, who has worked with little upstarts like Facebook, Snapchat, and Airbnb in advertising and building their brand messaging long before they became the Goliaths they are today. My conversation with Eric Toda, now global head of social marketing at Meta and founder of Meta Prosper, ranges from what he thinks founders get wrong to how he's choosing to stand out and use his megaphone in his career to uplift the Asian American community. You don't want to miss this. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact, purpose, and returns, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings. Before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you. Smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. This way, you'd be the first to know of new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the U.S. and Asia venture ecosystem, and that we can all keep making billion-dollar moves together. Now let's get started. So the question is, who is Eric Toda, and what were some of sort of the crucible moments in your life that brought you to where you are today? Well, for for those who don't know me, as you said, I'm Eric Toda. I'm a marketing executive. Been a marketing executive for a little over a decade now, and I've worked at great brands like Facebook and Nike and. Snapchat, Airbnb, Gap. And I've always been very focused on storytelling, storytelling mm-hmm. and diversity within that storytelling. I grew up as one of the only few Asian families in the suburb of the Bay Area that I'm from. When you don't see yourself uh, in the classrooms or in your history books, you immediately feel like you don't belong. And I definitely didn't. All my friends were from other communities, other races, but I myself did not see myself, you know, out there. You know, I, I was always told I was so Asian, even though I was, you know, I was born here, even though I don't speak yeah. any other languages. And even though my parents, you know, again, like I don't speak any languages, my parents refused to teach me those languages because they felt that that would put me at a disadvantage. They felt that that would, that would get me bullied. You know, I still got bullied even to the point of, when I was in high school, I asked a girl to go to homecoming with me and she told me straight to my face, well, Eric, I don't like Asians. Wow. And she thought that was, that was an okay thing to say. And so all of these experiences have really led to, one, a perspective that I have that 
that is why I do what I do. I, that is why I try to change the conversations for us. That is why I try to push forward more equilibrium when it comes to our community with other communities. And that's because, again, I just think that the more representation that we have there, good representation that we have out there, the more that my kids don't have to deal with everything I just told you about, you know, and I got into advertising for just that reason, because I didn't see myself in the classroom, because I didn't see myself in a history book, because I didn't see myself in so many different ways. I go home trying to find solace, turn on TV, and I don't see us. I don't see us in the TV shows. I don't see us in the ads. And the, the way that I do see us when we do show up is in a, like a stereotypical fashion, right? And I'm Japanese Filipino. And typically when we do show up on TV and ads, it's stereotypical. It's hyper, hyper, hyper biased. And it always represents East Asian only. And I'm Southeast yeah. Asian too. And so I thought in my head, when I started thinking about a career, what if I can be a part of a little tiny bit of the solution where if I controlled and created those ads, maybe I could put us in there. I could put other communities in there in the right way because marketing and advertising is one of the few industries that one puts work out there, but two could influence millions of, and billions of people with just 30 seconds of work. Can you tell us a little bit more, you know, when, when you talk about the racism that you felt within your childhood, um, give us a little bit of a snapshot of that beyond, you know, that, that asking your, that girl for her hand at the dance and being told you're too Asian for me. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. My identity, my belonging in this country is, is very much on a spectrum. My father was born here. His father was born here and his father was born here. So pre gold rush. So that puts me nearly more American than 90% of the people that you walk by on the streets. However, and they say representation matters to the point of it being a cliche. And there's no one else that looks like you in a classroom when you're a second grader and kids see you and they say, well, he has black hair. His face is different. His skin is different. Like he's definitely different. He's not American. Even though I was, even though I was born here and even though my family's from here and they immediately think I'm the most Asian person they've ever seen. But I say a spectrum because then I go to San Francisco, which is not too far from where I grew up. And my cousins live there. But because of where I'm from, because I don't, I'm not from a place where a ton of Asians are, my cousins immediately say, well, Eric, you're not very Asian. You're actually white. And so I don't really know where I fit on being Asian or not being Asian. And therefore I'm on a spectrum. And I think this is what's most interesting about this time is that you are seeing so many people that are on the spectrum. They're not super, super, you know, they, they don't super, super identify with either ends of the spectrum, but they're just there and that is okay. And that's a lot of the reason why I do what I do is because I'm trying to make it okay for anybody, no matter where they grew up, no matter, they don't need to be a hyper-polarized version of, of themselves. They can identify with who with what they want to identify. And I think the story that you're looking for is that my family's story here is a very American story littered with racism and, 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 and discrimination. My, my grandfather was a farmer in, in Central California, and this is why I do what I do. Um, this is why I feel so American, is that he was a farmer in Central California. And during World War II, the U.S. government takes away their farm and throws him and his family in the Japanese internment camps in Poston, Arizona. And while they were on their way to the camps, my grandfather enlisted into the U.S. Army. Uh, to a regiment called the 442nd, which is still to this day, the highest decorated U.S. Army regiment of all time. An all Japanese regiment is the highest decorated, most decorated 
U.S. Army regiment of all time. I wanted to say that again, because when you think about calling someone not American or not, you have to understand the history of what Asian Americans have done for this country. We built the railroads. We fought right next to all of you for your same freedoms. And to say that I'm not American, to say that I'm not one thing or another that you believe that I should be in is why I tell that story because the spectrum is broad and it's wide, but you're allowed, at least in this country, you're allowed to be on that spectrum no matter what. And that's why I think that that story means so much to me. And that's why it fuels a lot of the work that I do is because I want my life to be not just a love letter to the future, like my kids, that they don't have to deal with the same things that I deal with. But it's also a love letter to my grandparents who fought and who bled for this country for the right to belong alongside other communities. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. And it's interesting that with the different experiences that you went through at such an early age, it pushed you in a direction of thinking about media as a platform to scale impact uh, to create the change that I believe you're, you're, you're working on really hard now and that you've already begun to do. But before that, you actually uh, went into law and I believe in trust. That was your first foray into building your career. How does uh, someone who's supposed to be a law graduate end up building a career in media and marketing? <laughs> By accident. <clears throat> you talked about like me being in law. No, no, no. Um, I got into law school and then I dropped out. I want to make sure that was uh, that was said. I am not an attorney, never finished. I think if there's one thing to be said about that, I've always been surrounded by good people to tell me the right thing. And, and one of those amazing, great people is was then my girlfriend who convinced me that I should not be a lawyer. I should not be an attorney. It's not for me. I should, I should go into a sector, an industry where I can tell stories, where I can put myself more in the work. Versus- now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. I was doing transactional law, which I wanted to do. And so I fell into advertising because I applied to about 200 jobs after I dropped out of law school. And the only job to answer back was a company, a small startup at the time, called Facebook. And Facebook was offering me a job to be on the advertising team. And that was my first introduction to, to actually do advertising, to actually do marketing. Before that, I was just a fan. And then I realized that this, again, that this is an opportunity for me to hopefully change things for more people that look like me and put myself more in the work, you know, more so than being an attorney would. So it's all by accident, which is hyper cliche for me to say. Don't get me yeah. wrong. But, it, but life is about opportunities and sometimes opportunities just show up. And this one just showed up. And your chapter at Facebook was an interesting time. As you said, it was a little upstart at that time. Yep. And you were particularly told by, I believe, a family member, I believe it was your father, to keep your head down, focus on the work, and don't look a white executive in the eye. Tell us a little bit more about that. And, you know, how was Facebook advertising when you were just starting out? When I think about the genesis of that question, 
And a lot of people have attached themselves to that. They're like, why would your own father tell you that? Why would he tell you something like that? And the reason why he told me something like that was because he was taught the same thing by someone that had guns pointed at them in an internment camp. My wife is Jewish and her family, you know, had to live through the concentration camps in, in Germany. There is a lot of generational trauma when you are persecuted, when you are held against your own will. And if you survive, you take that trauma and you take the survival skills from that trauma and you have to pass it down in literally the need for survival. And my father told me all those things because he just wanted me to survive. It's a different time for sure, but those survival tactics is how I still stand. Now, I didn't subscribe to what he was suggesting, but instead I found another path for myself and that's not to survive anymore. It's to break barriers. It's to change the trauma. It's to, to understand why that trauma existed. It's to understand the survival tactics that, that I was been taught and told, but to hopefully change the narrative. Now, that's only on one side of the equation. I can't tell you how many times someone has pulled me aside in a meeting and said, I can't talk the way I do. And you hear my voice. You see how I, you see how I talk. I'm not meek, nor am I soft-spoken. And I, I speak a certain way. Now, a lot of people, specifically executives, have pulled me aside and say, Eric, you can't, can't challenge. Don't challenge, Eric. Just keep your head down. Keep your head down. Just do the hard work. You'll be recognized. A lot of, to be fair, Asian colleagues have told me that the way I do things is not the way that they were taught and they don't like it. And to that, I say, I don't care. And the reason why I don't care is because the way I do things and the way that I speak and the way that I challenge and the way that I advocate, not just for myself, but for my community is what is going, it was what it's going to take to change the visibility and to change the way that we're seen in America. It's going to change the way that we're recognized, applauded for our efforts and the way that we gain more visibility. We cannot be model minorities and nor should we. And in, for many generations, we have subscribed to that because that is our survival tactic. But I don't think we need to survive anymore. We have a different opportunity now. And how was uh, that experience in Facebook at that time, you know, working for what was going to be the giant that it is today? Amazing, life-changing. You know, I joined Windows with 200 people, right? And I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know it'd be all this at the time. I just thought it was a job, to be fair. Um right. And a lot of people told me when I joined that that was a mistake. And I told them, fine, if it is a mistake, at least I could save up a little bit of money to ask my girlfriend to marry me and get her a ring. Um, but I'm just going to work hard. And I think what that taught me, being at Facebook at the time and being so close to executives and being so close to you know, the earliest stages of digital marketing and social marketing and all that was that there are a ton of opportunities to not just learn... But again, to find your voice, find your voice, build your platform, because this is all the Wild West out here. And when it is the Wild West, like you have to go advocate for what happens next. And so I think being a part of Facebook at that time taught me everything I, I have known, the way I operate in business. And I've carried that with me through Nike, through Snapchat, through Airbnb. And it's, and it's only, to be honest with you, it's only been amazing. You know, I, I think that it was an amazing experience that, that taught me everything I know today. Yeah. And we'll come back to, I guess, the evolution of Meta, you know, as, as that becomes your, your 
big chapter now. But in between, like you mentioned, you work with a number of name brands, uh, including Gap as well, of which you've experienced some pretty interesting things in between. Talk to us a little bit about that. And, you know, I mean, when did you leave Facebook the first time and, and why? I left Facebook in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and you asked why. Yeah. To, go to, to go to Nike, of course. When you're a marketer, there are a few brands out there that will teach you so much more about being a marketer. It's like getting a five different master's programs under one house. You know, you have Coca-Cola for sure, yeah. Apple, Procter and Gamble, General Mills, and Nike is very much still for like five generations and running one of the greatest marketers of all time. And for me, it was an opportunity to be surrounded by some of the greatest marketers in the entire world, some of the greatest agencies in the entire world, and to hopefully live out a childhood dream. You know, you see my office right now of working in sports and sports are always important to me. Sports is one of the one places for the most part where my race didn't matter. They only saw Hmm. my athletic ability. And that's why I love sports so much is because I've, I was always respected on when I played sports, you know, whether or not what happened afterwards is a different, different story, but sports was always an equilibrium for me. And that's why I love sports so much. So being able to work at Nike in that capacity was a dream come true. It was a fulfillment of a childhood dream I had since I was about five years old. So, um, you know, I, I love Facebook for that, for that reason. And tell us more about that. I mean, you know, we don't typically have marketers on. So I, I wouldn't say, you know, we're, we're experts in like, this is the way that Nike does it and, and all that. And, and uh, you know, I guess unpacking some of what you feel truly has made them a world-class brand would be helpful and love to hear that. Oh, they're a world-class brand because they ruthlessly consider who they're marketing to. They, they ruthlessly consider their consumer. Everything that they do is in service to the consumer. They know their mm-hmm. consumer better than anybody else in the world. I know this because of the research that they do, because of the insights that they get, because of the feedback that they take in from the community to then make better products. It's just a ruthless, it truly is a ruthless focus on who the end user of your product is. Now, most founders I've seen at least just make the product and then they're like, well, I'm just going to tell the consumer what they want, right? Kind of an arrogant point of view. I believe that you are always in service to your consumer because you don't exist without them. You know, it's just like the most pragmatic thing to say. It's like, oh, like you're going to buy my product. Great. Like I don't exist without you buying that product or using that product. So therefore, I should probably ask you what you love about it. I should probably ask you what, what can make it better. I should probably ask you why you spent your hard earned money on my product versus me saying, I'm going to make this and you're going to buy it. And you're not going to tell me otherwise. And I'm going to change it, even though you didn't ask for the change. And then I'm going to change it again. Because why not? I believe Nike's ruthless focus on the consumer, who is a hyper, hyper strong athlete, an Olympian, all the way down to someone just learning to run around their block, is why they've been such an incredible, not just marketer, but a product company. And that sentiment, that strategic mindset, that ruthless focus I've taken with me throughout my entire career. Yeah. And was there a particular campaign that you worked on that particularly surprised you in the way that it it showed up in the world or anything during that chapter that 
I guess, changed your mind on how to market. You know, one of the things that, one of the campaigns that I worked on a long time ago was for Nike baseball and it was for the Japan market. If you know Japanese baseball, it's very, uh, very uniform, right? Black shoes, black socks, like very dialed in. And one of the things that we saw was that there were players that wanted to express themselves more outside of the uniform through their socks, through their gloves, whatever. And the more that we asked them how they can express themselves and while still adhering to the uniform culture, the more that they can play better, the more that they can run freely. And we had a campaign in which we showcased all the ways that the uniform stayed the same, but their shoelaces changed or their glove colors changed or their, you know, their, their hats changed. And that was, that allowed them to express themselves in a way that that didn't happen in previous generations. And it was the, the perfect, maybe the most perfect execution to showcase the changing culture of sport in a country so focused on tradition. And Mm -hmm. I loved it because it was the, it wasn't us saying that you're going to do this, but instead them telling us this is what they do naturally. And us saying, might as well amplify it, might as well build for it. And I would say that Nike baseball campaign in Japan is probably one of my favorite representations of how you build for the community versus you building at the community. Yeah. And this is a fascinating point. I mean, in marketing, I think a lot of your role is really taking pace and of what's going on on the ground, the cultural shifts, as you mentioned. But how did they, particularly at this time with, um, you know, understanding what's going on with the Japanese consumers, pick that up? Like what tells you, I guess what I'm thinking about is there's always a tipping point in which some brands, you know, pick the right moment to do the right thing because of the input that they have. What helped you in, in that point in realizing that that was prescient for the moment? You know, this is where marketers don't get enough credit, to be fair. And I say this as a marketer. Um, we look at a lot of data mm-hmm. every single day. And when you're at Nike, you have sales data, you have traffic data, you have social media data, which are, just, are tags and conversation volume and sediment. And a lot of those things dictate, well, they don't dictate, but they, they inform what you want to do and either def- confirm or deny it. And as a marketer or as a chief marketing officer, it's your job to be in charge of the market. Sounds pretty simple, right? When many companies don't understand or that the misconception about marketers is that they're like some Madison Avenue, Don Draper, ad admin type of thing in which they just make some slogans and then they call it a day. Most marketers today are probably some of the most sophisticated business people in the entire world because they look at so much data every single day. And that data informs the what happens and what comes out of their mouth. But also it's in this in a in a series of like probably like an hour, if you're looking at social media, for example, you have a 24-7 focus group that's literally telling you all the things that an FPNA person would have said, okay, we're going to go to Vegas. We're going to have a focus group and then we're going to ask them a bunch of questions and then we'll pay them 20 bucks. Your 24 seven focus group are the channels that you market on. And mm-hmm. these people have paid their hard earned money. And if your product is not matched up to their expectations of the brand, 
of the product, of the sport that they're playing? Oh, they're going to tell you. And it's your job to listen to that, to then inform all the things that you want to do. And I also say this too, like marketers today are so sophisticated that they're more GMs. They're more general managers in that they understand how the business makes money. And then they augment their jobs to either accelerate, amplify, or make more efficient how the business makes money. And I think that's a misconception about marketers because for so long, the stereotype of marketers were that Don Draper type. And I, I blame AMC for that because while it was very, while it was a very sexy uh, representation of what marketing is, I can tell you right now, I've never experienced anything like in Mad Men. I think it would be cool, but that's not my job. My job is very different from that. Yeah. Well, and this is why we bring you on to, to give us a little bit of reality check right, on what's going on behind the scenes there. I'm not seeing Eric Toto with a cigar you know, giving a pitch with his whiskey no, in hand. No, 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 no. You, you exchange that cigar and whiskey for Excel sheets and regression models and a lot of, yeah. a lot of white hairs thinking about, you know, how we're going to, how we're going to drive down, you know, CAC and drive up ROI. Absolutely. And that's what I will say the investors are here for, you know, it's, it's about what other typical <laughs> strategies that, that you've learned that has uh, resulted in that. Now, then from Nike, you go to Snapchat for a, a small bit. Uh, yep. Was it a year that you were there? Correct. Yep. And tell us a little bit about the time uh, of what was going on in Snapchat. Was it, you know, at its peak or? It was certainly at its, at one of its hottest moments. I was there in the first 90 people and it was very young. You know, I go from big, you know, conglomerate Nike to, to Snapchat, which is very young and very small. And it allowed me to build again. It allowed me to take chances, make mistakes, launch certain things that you see in Snapchat today, like discover uh, specs, all that. And, you know, I, I think it was, um, it was a great time for me to learn what I really wanted out of my career. You know, was it really, did I really want to be in a company this small? Did I really want to be in a position in which I was, you know, the overall head, you know, mm. things like that. I, I think it, it, for me, I think one of the benefits that I got from Snapchat is that that mentality that I just spoke about from Nike, that ruthless consideration for the consumer, like that was very much ingrained in Snapchat. And so I think that's a consistent that I was like, oh, okay, cool. I like companies that, really, really consider their consumer. I like, I like, I like companies that have grander ambitions, you know, to, to expand their growth and to drive, drive up ROI and drive conversions by creating new products, you know, that the community wants and to be able to see that done, not necessarily in a shoe, uh, but in a, in software reminded me how much I love tech. And so my time at Snapchat was, was short for sure. Mostly because I, I went to Airbnb, um, mm. which is another great opportunity. But two, it allowed me to reaffirm uh, what I wanted out of a job and what I wanted out of a career. Yeah, yeah, and and so when Jonathan Mildenhall dropped <laughs> your line to say, "Oi, are you coming or not to Airbnb?" Your answer was absolutely. You know, you don't say no to Jonathan Mildenhall or someone like Jonathan Mildenhall, who's on the board mm -hmm. of Peloton now of. Uh, fanatics, <clears throat> and he's arguably one of the greatest CMOs, honestly, to do that job. And you don't say no. You just don't. You know, this is not. That's not a wise thing for you to do. It's you know, that's a career limiting move to say no. And so, yeah, absolutely, I said yes. And and working with him showed me what it means to be an executive of color. Um, mm. Showed me how to 
use your voice to make change. Uh, Jonathan Millenhall is one of the, one of the most famous things he ever did was call out the can lion festival of creativity for not being diverse enough. And in turn made them significantly diverse. And I saw that and I was like, wait, he can, he can make more change by continuing to use his platform, not just to market the marketing that he does, but to influence an entire industry that can influence the entire world. And so, mm. you know, he helped me find my voice and he taught me how to challenge myself, how to push myself to be an even better marketer than Nike did. And, you know, working with him was uh, once in a career for sure. And I, and I owe a lot to him of, of the way that I talk, the way that I advocate for the community, the way that I market and run my career and run the, the teams that I do is a lot because of him. Yeah. And when you say the way you talk and the way you frame things <clears throat> that you've learned a lot from him, what, what does that mean? To always be yourself and to be authentically you. <clears throat> um, I went through media training once at, at Airbnb and, you know, typically when you do all the media training, it's, uh, you gotta be very dialed in. You know, if this was, if, if I did everything that I was trained to do with you, you would have very short answers from me. Mm. I would say, yeah, Airbnb was a fantastic opportunity and I'm very grateful that I was, I received that opportunity to work there. I didn't say that though, Sarah, you know, I, I think one of the things that he taught me was take what I learned, but continue to, to speak from my heart, continue to, to tell the truth, my truth, because my truth and my experience may inspire someone else to do the same thing. And we need more of that than we need more of it's, it's an honor Can't to be answer. here with you, Sarah. Uh, and I, <laughs> you know, that's a great, that's a great question. Thank you. And, and yes, it was great to work at Airbnb. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love that, you know, and we're here for it, right? I think, you know, what I, I try to get out of my guests most of the time is really the human experience of everything, right? You're doing big things. You're doing the hard thing every day and what makes you keep going the way that you do. And at this time at Airbnb, you know, you were doing social marketing. You were the global head of social marketing and, and editorial content. Uh, tell us a little bit about that time in Airbnb. Uh, I mean, you know, it's with these big, big brands that you've been with, it's hard to remember a time where they were small, right? Or not as prominent as they are today. So I'd well, love to well, hear, you know, uh, the journey yeah. there. <laughs> uh, I, I want to be clear. Nike was never small. Uh, um, <laughs> well, long, long ago. That's right. Yeah. You know, I... Airbnb, when I joined, was in the, it was turning the page of small tech brand to the category leader alongside, you know, that transcended Expedia, hotels, booking. <clears throat> and we were very much in that, in that zone. We were actively transcending the category. And so because of that, we had, a ruthless, almost manic obsession with understanding everything that our competitors were doing and how we can literally do the exact opposite. How can we hopefully not just push ourselves to be better, but push the industry to be better? Travel is such a human, it is such a human, human experience. And the way that, the way that we saw the opportunity was let's tell stories about humans versus telling stories just about deals. 
Now, deals are always going to be there. Sure. Fine. That's fine. It's a part of business, right? But the experience is so much more important because that's how you're going to want to open your mind. That's how you're going to justify the deal. But that's also how you're going to experience other cultures. And I think at the time, experience other cultures was a necessity because rhetoric from the current administration was about being more insular. It was about closing doors. It was about, frankly, uh, banning people from coming into this country. And we had a different and counter point of view that that is not going to push us forward. And we had a place and we believed we had a place and history in reflection now shows that we had a place to change that narrative for at least the travel and hospitality industry. And, and I, I certainly think we did that. This was what a two year stint you moved then to gap of which eventually, uh, and, and I hate, hate to, you know, bring the perhaps uh, unwanted trigger here, but that you were openly fired in a very public way. Um, what do you think went, went wrong there? Yeah, I mean, I joined Gap to confirm with myself to that if I could take the skills that I've learned across all these businesses and translate it into, you know, another conglomerate. The opportunity at Gap was to build something brand new. And it was an opportunity of a lifetime to build something brand new. Mm-hmm. In fact, what we built the infrastructure, the marketing, all that was then transferred to another department within Gap um, after I left that became the Kanye West Gap brand. Um, way cooler to say that about two years ago than it is that's to right. say now, to be <laughs> <laughs> to be fair. Um, yeah. But that's a, that is a, um, a testament that we build something uh, we're worth caring about. Now, I think one of the things that I also joined for was that I wanted to see if I could be a CMO. I wanted to see if I could be the top marketer. And I think what I learned from that experience was how to work with a board um, that was very revenue focused, rightfully so. Um, how to run a PL to a T, like laser focused PL. But I think the bigger thing is just to manage the market. I think manage the market. Like I came into Gap Inc. as like a storyteller, a brand person, because I was coming from Airbnb, right? I came out of Gap as a better business person, a mm. better general manager, someone that no longer has the ambition to be a CMO anymore, but more of a COO or CEO now. And so I think if I were to look at my time at Gap, there was a lot of things that I, I there were a lot of mistakes that I made, but I think at the end of the day, it, it showed me and grew my ambition of what I want out of my career. Yeah. And that's interesting that, you know, in every chapter that we've sort of passed through very quickly, you always talk about how you're learning more about yourself. That's a very interesting way of thinking about your career in that you're looking at it almost as a training ground in each chapter. Oh, it's a canvas. It's a ca- your yeah. career is a canvas and every single job that you take are different paints on the canvas. Now, sometimes you pick the wrong paint. Sure, that's fine. But you can paint over it. That's totally cool. But at the end of the day, you take a step back and you realize the the masterpiece that you made. And if you only stay at one place, and if you only look for one skill set, if you only paint with one color, you're going to get a big canvas of just one color. That's really boring. And that's really lame, to be fair. Like really, really lame. Like don't just paint one color. That's like, no one wants that. Yeah. 
I, I love that framing. That, that's beautiful. It's a tapestry of all your experiences. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu loving entrepreneur and co-founder of rocket boat he talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a shark tank flop but ended with a 50 million dollar exit you know that's our jam listen to it talking too loud wherever you get your podcast and, and but I, I do want to get to, you know you said you made a lot of mistakes and it's easy to brush this off right but surely it was painful uh, to be fired, you know, when you thought this was your opportunity to be, you know, heading up one of the key companies you listed, right? You know, you've been at Nike, the next one was going to be Gap, and things didn't work out the way you planned. What was it that really didn't work out there? I mismanaged expectations of how hard it is going to be to 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 build a new company in a very crowded category. You mm. know, I think... I think I've been very grateful to work at companies where the category was already made or the momentum was already there. And, you know, you take it, you don't take that into account. You take those things for granted. You take momentum for granted. You're just like, oh yeah, we built this great brand and it became Airbnb because we did right. a great job. There's something to be said about timing. There's something to be said about market conditions. There's something to be said about consumer conditions. There's something to be said about consumer saturation. And I didn't consider any of those things. But I think mm. there are not enough business people, little marketers, that have failed like that to really understand that. Really, really understand that. You know, a lot of people on corporate boards are have great MBAs from great programs, right? But tell me how many times they failed. Tell me how many times yeah. they took a risk. Tell me like the real life experience in which they failed that then they can translate that on their board for whatever company and tell them, don't do this because I've seen this before. I've seen this before and here's how you navigate around it. That was one of the benefits of failing like that. But again, like it wasn't, uh, was it, did I make mistakes? Absolutely. Do I regret those mistakes? Absolutely not. Because mm. the, what I learned from it alongside the successes that I've had is that again, like in, in another great analogy, your career is very much like a boxing match. You know, some rounds you win, some rounds you lose. It's, you just got to keep getting back up and punching away. Yeah. And you got up eventually. Uh, well, eventually. Uh, eventually. How, how long did it take you? I mean, did you actually, were you grieving that? You know, it sounded like with so far throughout your career, it's been wins all the time, right? And this seemed to be. Oh, I grieved. Deep. Oh, I grieved. I don't, don't, don't get me wrong. You know, I found myself, <laughs> I found myself on a train at eight o'clock in the morning while commuters were going in and I was going out questioning if I should even do this anymore. You know, if I made the wrong decision way back in the conversation to be a marketer, you know, you know, I took about 18 months off. And, and how, how old were you at this time? If you don't mind me asking. 30, 30 years 30. old. No, no, no. 30, 30, 31, 31. Then I had a, I had a daughter during that time who I was very grateful to just be there and spend a lot of time with her. I helped friends out. I joined boards. 
you know, to, to, to help out the industry. I, so I still stay connected. I didn't like fully detach and grow a beard and, you know, <laughs> went, went into the forest. Don't get me wrong. I was, I was still there. No, I was, I was still there, but yeah, I grieved, you know, my ego was hurt. I take a lot of pride in my career. I take a lot of pride in, in the experiences that I've had and to have an experience to take such a public loss like that was really devastating to me and it hurt a lot, but it made me better in retrospect. And as I look at it, it made me so much better because it allowed me one to spend time with my kids, which was fantastic to spend time with my wife, which is fantastic to get healthy. That was huge. But I think the bigger thing is it, it, it allowed me to really, really, really fine tune what I wanted out of my next chapter, what I wanted and what fueled me and what purpose I wanted to bring into my next chapter outside of holding a title and outside of making sure everybody knew that I was a CMO. I wanted something more than that. Mm. And what is that? To make change. After the pandemic, well, as the pandemic started, I was considering some options of where I go next. And, you know, I was thinking, well, I'm going to go to Google, obviously, because that seems like the natural progression for me. I have a lot of friends there. I want to do good work there. But then I got a lot of phone calls from people back at Facebook to say that there's not, there's opportunities here, opportunities for me to have my voice heard, opportunities to make change. And the door's open. Mm. And, Facebook and coming back to Facebook, <clears throat> it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Facebook is one of those places where I can unabashedly be myself and I would be encouraged to be successful from it. And I could challenge, I can build, I can inspire, and I can make external change, you know, through my role at Facebook. And so, yeah, you know, coming back to Facebook, it was about making change for sure. Yeah. And, and tell us more about what you're doing and what your focus is in Facebook right now. Yeah. So I came back originally as the global head of social marketing, um, overseeing digital marketing, you know, specifically the social, you know, working with our business teams, working with um, program teams to, to go to market, you know, very, very, you know, very linear stuff. But then the earliest stages of 2021 and really the late stages of 2020, you started to see a there's a very disturbing uptick in violence against the Asian American community. Mm -hmm. And the violence against us is not new. Um, I don't mean to scare you as a new American, um, <laughs> but America is riddled with racism and violence against other communities. It's kind of like our thing. And I felt, <clears throat> I felt that I could help make change um, from the position that I sat in. And what I did was... I wrote a piece about my grandfather who I've never spoken about in this light before being a victim to a hate crime when I was a teenager. He was in a racially motivated hate crime and just it looked at the hate. The crime was exactly what you saw on TV during the later stages of 2020 when people were blaming Asian Americans for the pandemic uh, in the early stages of 2021 when you saw people getting killed for being Asian or even in Atlanta during the mass shooting, which was targeting Asians. And so I wrote a piece in Adweek challenging the marketing and advertising industry to not give up just because there's a new president in, in, in the White House. Because they fought, the advertising and, and, and marketing industry fought in 2017 
for women's equality, rightfully so, during the Me Too movement and on. They fought for the black community during Black Lives Matter in the summer of 2020, rightfully so, and they continue to do that. But don't take my community and what's happening to us off. And so I wrote a piece in Adweek, which is still the highest read op-ed in Adweek's history. It shut down Adweek because they didn't have enough servers. (laughs) And it went viral. And from that, I found a new chapter of my life, and that's to hopefully change the future for my children. That everything that I've told you today, the discrimination that I faced, the racism that I faced, hopefully they don't feel that. And if I can change at least the marketing and advertising industry, if I could change the business world, specifically the corporate world, I'll do that. And with that purpose, I created a new organization within Facebook, which is now Meta. And that, that new organization is called Meta Prosper and it's dedicated to supporting the Asian American community and its economic and, and to create more economic opportunity for it. Yeah. And before we go into how this is being achieved in Meta, I of course I've I've read that piece which which definitely moved me and you, you almost skip over the details, but why did it take you this amount of time to talk about your grandfather who was I believe it was in the 90s where he was attacked? Uh, when he was outside and literally left to die on the streets the way that we've seen happen in the last few years. Well, I mean, as you said, it's been happening the last few years, but I guess it's been brought to light only in the last few years. Correct. <clears throat> Correct. It took me this long because I didn't think, I mean, I, I, I just want to say this, I should have done it earlier for sure. I have mm. regrets and I should have done it earlier, but I didn't have the self-confidence to do it. I, I have the self-confidence to talk about how I, do marketing. I've been doing it my entire career. But the self-confidence to talk about being Asian, when I myself have not been told I am as Asian as I should be or as I'm too Asian. You know, I when I wrote the piece, I sat on the piece for about a week after I sent it to Adweek after saying no. I didn't sleep for two days. My, my wife kept asking me like why I'm just sitting there in, in the bed. And it's because I didn't know if I had a place to say something. I didn't know I was Asian enough. I didn't think I was Asian enough. I didn't think anybody would listen. I thought I was sacrificing my career, you know, for a community that, to be quite honest with you, never saw me as one of them Mm -hmm. uh, in many cases. And I now know all those things were completely wrong. And, and that's why I spend my time, a lot of my time advocating for a change in mentality, not just for the communities looking at us, but for the community looking in the mirror is because we deserve, we deserve an evolution. We deserve a redefinition of what it means to be Asian American. And obviously you being now Asian American, I hope to change that, you know, for people like you. Thank you. And, you know, I, I wanted to touch on this point because, um, it, it seems like a natural progression for you, uh, that it made sense for you to then bring your passion and your mission into your career, which I've also managed to somehow figure out. Um, but it's not common, right? People ask yeah. me all the time, how did you come to the point? And I, even for me, I felt like I became an accidental feminist. I've always been a feminist, but I've become an accidental activated feminist, right? To make it my career. And there's a cost to it for sure. How did you make that decision to sort of merge the two and this is your thing now? 
Now, are you like purposely trying to make me cry? Is that like the point of this part of the podcast? Um, no. I, I, it's, not, it's, it's not cool. It's not cool. No, you know, I I surprised, I, I, I may have surprised a lot of people, but I mostly surprised myself um, after I wrote the piece. Because again, I didn't think anybody was going to read it. I really didn't. I told my best friend, I was like, no one's going to read this, man. You know, I launched this on a Friday night before Lunar New Year, which is a three-day weekend. And that's a death sentence for any article. That's like where companies like send their trash. They're like, I'm going to launch on Friday night. No one's going to care. And then it did what it did, right? And then I find myself on a, uh, Instagram Live with Henry Golding, who's a great friend, a great supporter, um, a great advocate, You know, Lisa Ling, Lucy Liu, like all of these amazing celebrities who I would have no business talking to were reaching out saying thank you. And then I find myself on CNN and Wall Street Journal and all these other places. And that was great. But I think the biggest thing that changed my mind about all of this, mm-hmm. I knew it was the right thing to do to say something because no one else was. But I think what changed my mind, really changed my life forever, was the first live interview I've, I've ever done. You know, I'm sure you've heard this story. And this is why I say, like, I think you're trying to make me cry. Is I was sitting right here on my first live broadcast and mm, I kicked my kids out of my office. And they're watching it live. They're watching my interview live in the other room. And in the middle of the podcast, in the middle of the interview, um, I see my phone light up and it's a picture. And it's a picture of my son, uh, watching me on TV, uh, just standing there watching me. And it was the most powerful, powerful image I've ever seen in my life because I realized at the time, and I still realize it today that I've spent so much of my career focused on myself. Like so, so much, and like you've heard the stories. I focused on like what I've learned and what I'm doing and who I am and the titles that I've heard. But this one image really told me that if the only thing that my kids ever remember about me when it's all said and done is just being a marketer or a businessman, that I didn't do a good job with the rest of my life. And I stopped the interview and I started to cry. And she asks, like, is everything okay? And I was just like, no, uh, yeah, everything's fine. It's just my wife sent me a picture of my son watching this. And I realized I'm, I'm never going back. Like, this is who I am now. Like, there are probably other people's kids watching this. And I think they deserve, much like I did when I was at that age, to see someone like me do this. Yeah. And you got me. And so... <laughs> You've accomplished your mission, uh, which, uh, which, uh, I don't do very often. Well, that was powerful. And and I appreciate you sharing that because I, I, I think that's an important message, right? It's easy to get caught in the sort of, uh, career ladder. You know, how do I make the, how do I maximize my potential and all of these things, but to find purpose is a rare thing. Well, here's the thing. It's someone mm. told me this before. Your your life is really split up into two mountains that you have to climb. The first mountain that you climb is you. You find your voice, you find your your purpose, you you build a platform for yourself, right? And then the second mountain that you climb, which many, many don't, is about using the insights from the first mountain to advocate for people in your community. For yeah. us. Right. And you can see who those people are. A lot of them are elected officials or the president and anything like that. But, you know, to see it from someone in business is very rare. And I think that's what I'm hoping to change too, is I want more business people to understand that they have a lot of, a lot, a lot of responsibility and obligation, but also opportunity to not just 
push the papers, but to hopefully make change, you know, in, in, in their own communities and for the, and for the, uh, for the things they care about. Quick fireside round is what I usually end with. So first thing that comes to mind, no context. Yeah, are you ready for it? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Money or power, Eric? What? <laughs> um, I would say money. Fame or fortune? Fortune. Okay. Hardest lesson you've had to learn thus far? That I don't know every answer. Hmm. Unexpected lesson? That my voice is more powerful than I imagined. Wow. What you would tell your younger self, young Toda, what would you tell him? That you're going to fight for the future that you want to see. And you talked about your kids. Three principles of life that you would want your kids to espouse as they grow older. Ask questions, be open to being wrong, and always, 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 always learn about people. Always. What are you watching on any streaming service right now? Uh, Yellowstone, because... I spent from the age of eight to 15, I spent every summer in Bozeman, Montana, because my aunt lived there. And so Yellowstone takes place in Bozeman. And so it's, it's kind of like uh, a time machine for me. A book that has changed your life. To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. And finally, what is the legacy that you will live behind? That I do hope that Asian Americans in this country today are seen as Americans. That when you look at my kids, you don't see Asian, you see American and that they belong. That's beautiful. And with that, Eric, it's a wrap. Thank you so much for your voice. Of course. For leveraging your voice and uh, sharing a lot of yourself because as, as you said, I think it truly, truly inspires so many. It's inspired me. <laughs> <laughs> good, 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 good. I mean, that, that that's all I can hope for, right? And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.